0: Well, again, it's good to be back with you, Sanctuary. Uh, Thank you to those of you who were praying for me, my family, these last couple weeks while we've been sick. Um, We got tested for COVID. It wasn't COVID, tested for the flu, it wasn't flu, it wasn't RSV, it was rhinovirus, which is aptly named because it felt awful. It's the common cold, is what it is. Um... So I was listening to the service last week and I heard Father Chris uh, graciously invite you all to prayer for us. And I kind of had this like man cold moment of like, ah, like it's just a runny nose. I'm sorry. (laughs) But of course, there's no way in a pandemic you show up with a runny nose and you're like, it's not COVID. And people are like, yeah, okay, it's not COVID. So again, it is good to be to be back with you today. Today's lectionary texts, all the texts that we're dealing with. They all say something about speaking. They all say something about saying something, about how we speak, the dangers of speaking, the power of our speech. And when you're reaching for something to say, like I often am, and having a bunch of texts warning you of the dangers of saying much anything at all, um, it's less than encouraging, not a whole lot of confidence this morning in what we're about to do. But of course the texts, they're right. We don't know how to speak. We know this because our lives are full of memories and full of moments when what we have said, the ways we have spoken, have hurt other people, caused pain and confusion and doubt, both people doubting in themselves and doubting in God. And we know that that's true because unfortunately, as many memories as we have of ourselves speaking in ways that cause pain, we have been spoken to in ways that have caused us pain, in ways that have caused us doubt and confusion. And right now, maybe more than any time in my lifetime to be sure, maybe yours as well, we are suffering for a lack of ability to speak a lack of knowing how to say what needs to be said in ways that are faithful, in ways that bring life and not death. I'll spare us all of the social media comments because it's low-hanging fruit, right? Easy target. But it goes so much beyond just the social media space, just the comments section. It bleeds out into our public discourse, into the church's witness, into the broken ways that we speak to our family, to our children. In all of our speech, it needs to be healed in some way. It's important not because this is a new idea for us. This isn't new. If the texts are telling us anything today, it's that this is an evergreen issue, something that we as as the human species have been wrestling with for a really long time. How do we speak? When do we speak? What kind of speech do we give our lives to? So, of course, we realize that this is something that's been going on for a long time. And if you're anything like me, we realize that this has to stop. This has to change. Something needs to be done differently. And unfortunately for us, the solution is not to just try harder. The solution is not just to grit our teeth, to do better, to force ourselves to be more kind and more thoughtful and considerate. We are all too painfully aware of this thing called Southern hospitality. We're painfully aware because we know that oftentimes Southern hospitality is just a way of being kind and thoughtful and considerate in public, but being cruel and selfish in private. Trying harder to be nice is not the solution. In Romans 7, Paul talks about the way that our instincts, particularly our religious instincts, those things that are right, our tendency to want to do better and try harder, is one of the ways that we're actually tempted towards sin. Listen to this. Once, this is Romans 7, once there was no law, I was alive. But when the commandment came, sin came to life and I died. The commandment was meant to lead me to life, but it turned out to mean death for me, because sin took advantage of the commandments to mislead me, and so sin, through that commandment, killed me. What is Paul saying here? There are times when our instincts are right, those things which mean to lead us to life. But because we think that we can accomplish those things that God has already accomplished in Christ, they actually lead us to death. So there is a way that we're tempted toward the right things in the wrong ways or for the wrong reasons. And this is where we we have to rely on the Spirit to lead us, to teach us how to do those things, those right things in ways that lead to life and not death. This includes learning, being taught how to speak. Isaiah 50 verse 4 says this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. What Isaiah is suggesting to us when he talks about the tongue of a teacher. In another translation, it says that he has a disciplined tongue. The tongue of a teacher is not just about position. It's not just about being someone who speaks to other people. The tongue of a teacher is the one who has discipled his speech, who has learned what it is to speak a word of life and not a word Of death, A tongue that's been trained and taught and educated. And what does that mean? It means that we know how to talk. But faithful speech, a disciplined tongue, has to be learned. It has to be taught to us. Speaking in ways that bring life instead of death doesn't come naturally to us. We may say a whole lot of things, but rarely do we speak the word that we're called to speak. So what do we do? Knowing that we want to be people who speak life and not death, but also knowing that we can't, on our own, learn to speak these kinds of words. What do we do now? We've heard the gospel this morning. Now let's take a look at James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, encouraged to be here today. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body. It sets on fire the cycle of nature and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine, figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. This is not good news for us. The tongue is a fire, a fire that's been set ablaze by the fires of hell, no one can tame the tongue. It's full of deadly poison. We speak to bless God and then we turn around and we curse our neighbors, those who are made in the image of God. How could we justify ever saying anything ever? St. <laughs> Augustine, reflecting on these lines from James, says, No one can tame the tongue. So God became no one so that he could tame the tongue. What is Augustine saying to us? Because what we speak has to be taught to us, Christ takes on our flesh, becomes a nobody, precisely so that he can reframe our human nature, precisely so he can make available to us what was once inaccessible to us. Jesus Christ, as the first word of God, becomes a human being and then humanly speaks the word of God and does that as the least of these, does that as a nobody. This is the language of Philippians, that God made of himself nothing, of no reputation, empties himself out. In Dr. Green's words, for Christ, humbling himself is not a humility for Christ, God in Christ, by becoming human, does not become less than God, but instead raises humanity to new life. James says nobody can tame the tongue. Nobody can speak life. And Christ says, I am nobody, the least of these, a servant of all, and I have the words of eternal life, one who made no mistakes, one who spoke perfectly, God is a God who speaks. In the beginning, God said, and there was. And this is not just an attribute of God. God's whole life is conversation. The Father who speaks. The Son who is the spoken word. The Spirit who is the outcome of what is spoken. In other words, God the Father speaks. What God speaks is Jesus And what comes of Jesus and his life is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. And that same God who speaks is in us, calling us to speak with the mouth of Christ. So that what becomes of our lives is a life that spills out in love and joy and peace and peace and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, goodness, and self-control. But again, this does not come to us naturally. It's why Jesus has to reframe our humanity, our human nature, to show us what is possible, but only by the Spirit. So naturally, we can't speak life. We can't speak a faithful word. We can only speak death. And even when we try to speak life, so long as it's simply our own, our own advice, so long as it's our own good ideas, it is still, in James' words, poison and restless. So part of what we have to learn is how we speak by faith and not just speaking our opinion. We have to learn how to speak the word of God, Jesus, by the Spirit instead of speaking from our own sense of what is right and what is wrong, our own sense of what is good and what is bad. Because here's what happens. When we feel like we are the ones giving the good advice, when we're the ones who have the insider take and the right answers, what we do is we go around looking for people with bad advice, looking for people with different insider information and the wrong answers and we think that it is our new ministry to them to straighten these people out. Somehow we have to stop being people of advice, to not say what we're thinking and instead to start saying what God is saying, to speak from the place of God's heart and not our own heart. And the only way this is possible is by first recognizing what God's life is like. God's life is endless conversation. And the very nature of this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the nature of never having the final word. The nature of never having the mic drop or the hot take or the clap back. God's triune life is one that opens us up. It opens up space in conversation, not quashing it. Several of you have participated in our confirmation classes that we offer here. And we spend a lot of time talking about the creeds in particular. And one thing that I try to get everybody to see about what the creeds do to us and for us is that they open us up to more conversation, They open us up to one another. They don't close us off. And we juxtapose something like the creeds over and against what we see in like belief statements where we've proof texted our way to these ideas about this is right and this is wrong and here's what the Bible says about all those things. Belief statements, they close us off. They shut us down. They mean to end the conversation. The creeds open us up. We talk about The creed's in terms of a generous orthodoxy. We talk about getting out of the bathtub and starting to swim in the ocean. And in the same way, this is what speaking life looks like. Speaking life doesn't look like ending a conversation. It looks like inviting space into a new conversation for us. Advice seeks to end conversations. Because I'm going to give you my best advice, and you can either take it or leave it, and that's the end of it. But the word of God, speaking a word of life and not a word of death, it opens both you as the speaker and them as the listener. It opens you both up to begin to speak and to hear what God is saying from a place of wholeness and a place of belonging. We see all of this play out in our gospel text today. In one moment, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, (laughs) the guy who gets so much wrong so much of the time, that's why we love Peter. We can identify with him because he's a huge failure. (laughs) This guy who gets so many things wrong so much of the time gets this thing right. You, Jesus, are the Christ And by speaking from that place of union with Christ, of seeing clearly who Jesus is, Peter manages to speak a word of life and not a word of death. It's a word that for him and the disciples doesn't settle very many things. It opens up on a whole new world of possibilities. Naming Jesus as Christ doesn't settle much for them and it shouldn't settle much for us. Naming Jesus as Christ, again, for them and for us, opens up space, opens up a world of possibilities that we couldn't see before. It opens up on a new way of being a human being that is centered around love of God and love of neighbor. It's centered around enemy love, around turning the other cheek, around radical welcome towards those that you disagree with around hospitality to strangers to outcasts to refugees to foreigners this is the mark of the word of god it is welcoming it is open it is hospitable it's not closure It's not final or definitive. It doesn't close down possibilities or shut off our imaginations. It opens us up to new possibilities for the world. Peter's word wasn't good advice that ended the conversation. This was Peter speaking in union with Christ by the power of the Spirit to rightly name Jesus as Lord. It opened up, a new kind of hope for those who heard. And then what happens? <laughs> Peter rebukes Jesus, <laughs> is what happens next. Jesus gives this first prophecy of his passion, telling them the things that are about to happen to him. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside, riding high off of this moment of getting something right. One translation says that he began to remonstrate with Jesus. It means to forcefully protest against someone. It looks like this. You don't mean that, Jesus. What you just said isn't what you think you mean. You've got this one wrong. So Peter, who had just spoken this word of life, says to the word of life, you don't mean what you just said. This is how you know the difference between speaking your own word and speaking the word of God. Our word is based on our experience. And so it sounds like advice. It sounds like this I thought, and so I said. I wonder if this was the justification that Peter gives to the other disciples. I thought because he is the Christ, this could never happen to him. And so I said to Jesus, You don't mean that. And this is the place that we so often speak from this place of our own experiences and our own vantage points, our own truth. And what we see happen to Peter so often happens to us. We bump up against the life that Jesus imagines, bearing our own ideas and our plans and our words of advice, and we need the same rebuke that Peter receives, get behind me, Satan. A word about Satan. In the same way that God is love, Satan is the accuser. To say that God is love is not to say that God is loving or even that God is one who loves. These are attributes. Love for God is not an attribute. It's not something we attach or add on to God. God is love itself. And in the same way, accusation is not a characteristic of Satan, it's not an attribute of evil. Satan is the one who accuses, who blames, who finger points, who scapegoats. So if you want to know what God is doing in the world, look at what you are doing in the world. Because you are the people of God. And if you want to know what Satan is doing in the world, look for the accusers. Look for the ones who are blaming The ones caught up in pointing fingers, in limiting the possibilities of what is possible, creating dichotomies in the world, closing us off to one another rather than opening us up to endless possibilities. So often we get caught up in advice that's really just a word of judgment that's really just a word of blame and accusation. And the danger in letting our speech be all wrapped up in that kind of advice is that it immediately others anyone who disagrees with us. And when we're in the business of creating others, rather than living from a place of openness and hospitality, we start to close ourselves off to the hospitality of God. Because we can't We can't need God while we're busy playing God. While I'm too busy blaming someone else, accusing someone else, directing my angst and my anxiety and my fear onto some real or imagined other, I become incapable of living in a way that's humble, that's open, that's receptive to God's grace. I thought, and so I said, on the other hand, speaking a word of life, the life of Christ, it looks more like the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. He's actually quoting one of the Psalms, and he says, I believed, and so I spoke. Do you hear the difference? I thought, and so I said, Verses. I believed, and so I spoke. Speaking a word, not of our own advice, but the counsel of God, is rooted first in faith a belief about who God is and what God is doing in the world. Who am I? In the light of God, what God has done through Jesus Christ. This is the first place. Our speech is rooted. And when our speech becomes if, then, if you do what I'm suggesting, then you'll find a way out, then our speech is always conditioned and limited to our own imagination, our own experiences, our own sense of what's possible. And even when we're following our instincts, even our Religious instincts, like Paul says, this kind of speech can lead to death, and God invites us to speak a different word, to speak differently, to speak from a place of knowing God and Jesus as revealed by the Spirit of knowing God revealed to us in the scriptures. And when we know God in that way, we don't say, if you do what I say, you'll have the right outcome. Instead, we say, because God, you will. Because God is good, you will be okay. Because God is God, you can, you are, you will be. You are forgiven. You are welcomed. You will make a way forward into an impossible future. You can mend those broken and fractured relationships. You can do everything that you're called to do. You are able to resist the temptations that you're facing. You will endure and will remain secure in God's love. You are invited and welcomed and wanted. You can, you are, you will. Not if you do what I think you should do, but simply because God is God. As the text tells us in Isaiah 55, just as the rain and the snow come down from the heavens and do not return without watering the earth, making it yield and giving growth, to provide seed for the sower and bread for the eating, so is the word that goes from my mouth. It does not return to me empty without carrying out my will and succeeding in what it was sent to do. When we make this shift from I thought, so I said, to because of who God is, you will then the basis of our speech toward others is not our experience of them. It's not based on what we think others are capable of. It's based on our experience of God and trusting what God is capable of doing in their lives. It's not about our assessment of whether these people are good or bad or deserving or undeserving, but our knowledge of Jesus Christ and his goodness. This means I don't speak a word of hope to you because I trust your character. I speak a word of hope to you because I trust God's character. Because I trust that God is capable. So, so many people are saying so many things. And the temptation that we face is that we need to be people who react, we need to be people who say something better and louder than the people who are saying things that are wrong and unfaithful. But that can't be our motivation. That kind of instinct, even though it might be right, will lead us to death. We need a better word. And this is not about making positive affirmations. This is not about positive thinking or like some name it and claim it. (laughs) We've seen a lot of that. Remember, speaking a word of life and death is about possibility, it's about hospitality, it's about making new space available for people, sparking new imaginations, about making kingdom spaces ready, places where Christ is already welcome, a place where people are already speaking and learning how to speak a word of life to each other. And oftentimes when we don't know what to say, sometimes the best thing is to not say anything. And instead we listen. We offer one another what we refer to as the ministry of the ear. A person who simply without judgment can listen. Bonhoeffer says that one of the best gifts we give one another is the gift of not saying what comes to mind to say. But if we must speak, and we will, let it be a a word of life and not a word of death. A word that trusts more in the God that we know rather than what we know of our own experiences. A word of God's counsel, not a word of our own advice. A word that opens up new possibilities rather than tries to win an argument. Let us speak life. Amen.